Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Christopher Rufo. Chris has been on the show before. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a valued contributing editor of City Journal. His work explores a variety of issues, including critical race theory, gender ideology, homelessness, addiction, crime, and the struggles of American cities. Chris writes regularly for City Journal, as most listeners will know, and his work has also been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, and other publications. He has directed four documentaries, and you can check out his uh, YouTube channel where he posts new videos. Today, though, we're going to be discussing his New York Times best-selling book, America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything, which was published in July. The book is Chris's first, and it traces the intellectual origins of today's radical left. So, Chris, thanks very much for joining us. It's great to be with you. Uh, so you're, you're reporting for City Journal on race and gender issues. Uh, you know, it, it's been explosive. It's, it's exposed a radical ideologies, perversion of our institutions. It's, it's brought critical race theory in particular to the forefront of the public discourse, but also some of the more radical gender ideology um, that, that has been intruding in, in public schools. Um, it's reached a broad audience. It's influenced legislation in several states. What did you hope to achieve by writing this book, which is more of an intellectual history? Well, it, it's really interesting. As I have been doing the reporting for City Journal over the last few years, um, most of my work is finding sources within institutions, procuring documents, emails, PDFs, multimedia materials, uh, and then exposing them to the public. And so this is really kind of basic journalism 101 and, and tackling the documents, turning them into stories. But the whole time I was very curious uh, to learn of well, where do these ideas come from, whether it's CRT or gender or DEI bureaucracies, you know, how did they suddenly seem to capture so much of American life? And so as I was doing the reporting for City Journal, I was simultaneously going back and back and back and doing historical research, archival research, um, and really trying to to, to dig into uh, the, the origins of it beginning in 1968 and then the other bookend of the of the of the book would be uh, the kind of George Floyd revolution in 2020, and so um, it was really uh, fun. You know, all of it came from the reporting, um, and then I was you know silently uh, as the as the public was not looking, uh, you know, working backwards to try to understand at a greater depth the genealogy of some of these ideas. Well, you you highlight four major figures whose ideas and tactics have define the radical left uh, as we experience it today. So these were uh, the prophets of revolution, as you call them. Uh, philosopher Herbert Marcuse, who was uh, a kind of uh, figure that, that uh, was an intellectual guru of the left in the 60s, German thinker, activist Angela Davis, education theorist Paulo Freire, and then the law professor Derek Bell. I, I wonder you know, why these four um, and if you could briefly sum up their particular uh, contributions to today's left, uh, that would be useful. Absolutely, yeah. These were the four central figures from the, the new left. Um, and then what I'm arguing is that they set the stage for everything that followed. And so 
um, it's, it's, it's actually quite an interesting thing. I, I, I really concluded after doing all of this research that um, the, the, the far left, the radical left, let's say, has not had any original ideas since 1968, 1969. And in, in a sense, they were already fully fleshed out, fully baked, fully developed uh, by that time. And it's just a process of institutional conquest that has followed. And so Herbert Marcuse lays out the theory of revolution. He's taking the uh, neo-Marxist critical theory and applying it to the social conditions of the United States and in the post-war era. Um, and his ideas about revolution, about rep repressive tolerance, about kind of co about the coalition of the white intelligentsia and the black underclass driving the revolution uh, is still at the heart of left-wing politics today. Uh, Angela Davis, if you look at you know the Black Lives Matter movement, if you look at the so-called anti-racism scholarship, um, none of it innovates at all from what Angela Davis was writing about in the late 1960s. Um, Paulo Freire published a, a very influential book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed um, in the late 1960s that's really dominated intellectual discourse within graduate schools of education um, and, and is you know the primary text for teacher training programs in the United States um, that are all just now essentially footnotes on Paulo Freire. And then finally, Derek Bell, who was the godfather of critical race theory, really what, his, what he served to do was professionalize this, uh, enter this movement into academia, use uh, kind of legal reasoning and, and civil rights discourse, um, and, and, then, and then injecting it with the kind of racial cynicism um, that was used as a method for achieving institutional power. And so um, when you think of critical race theory in education and government and policymaking, all of it is really the, the, uh, the fruit of, of Derek Bell's work. And so I wanted to highlight all these four stories, not only to show the ideas in the abstract, but to show that these are flesh and blood human beings that are, that are flawed, uh, that, are, that are bringing these ideas uh, into public life. The, uh, the 60s and 70s, as you note in your book, were, were and people forget this sometimes, there, were, there was just incredible left-wing political violence at the time. So you had radical militant groups like the Black Panthers, the, the Weather Underground, um, Black Liberation Army. They were murdering people, kidnapping people, uh, you know, conducting jailbreaks. Uh, there were bombings galore, including in New York City. Um, you know, the New York Police Department headquarters was bombed. Uh, the U.S. Capitol was bombed. The Pentagon was bombed. All of this in an effort to spark uh, a revolution that these, these forces believed was imminent. Yet you write quite strikingly in the book that the radicals became far more dangerous after they laid down their arms. Why, why do you think so? Well, for, for quite a simple reason, is that when they pursued violent revolution, uh, starting in the late 1960s, but really coming to kind of full, 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 kind of full expression in 1971, 1972, um, their strategy failed. Uh, it didn't spark revolution. They, they were operating on this Marxist idea called Foucault theory, um, you know, from the Italian or the Latin uh, meaning focus or focal point. And they said that if they could focus public attention on these dramatic uh, examples of revolution, robbing banks, assassinating police officers, bombing America, key American institutions, that it would spark a, a wider revolt. Uh, that didn't happen. Actually, the opposite happened. They not only alienated the broad middle class in the, in the United States, but they alienated the very people that were supposedly their base because they were 
you know, causing chaos and lower income minority neighborhoods. And then uh, their their friends, colleagues, uh, people in their immediate environment said, we don't want any part of this. You know, we want change, perhaps, but we don't want to do it by, uh, you know, for example, assassinating police officers. And so um, they thought that the revolution was finished. And so even Herbert Marcuse in 1972 uh, writes a book called Counter Revolution and Revolt. And he says, you know, Hoover's FBI, uh, the, the broader public is anti-revolutionary. Um, all of these forces in American society have defeated the revolution. Marcuse, of course, was right in the short-term sense, but wrong in a long-term sense. And in fact, their method of using very uh, highly intelligent activists who were able to infiltrate uh, American institutions, beginning with universities and then spreading their influence from the universities outward, they were much more influential. Um, they were much more able to um, uh, conduct their revolution uh, silently uh, in the shadows initially um, through uh, anti-democratic or non-democratic institutional capture. Uh, and, and I think that the public in the United States really saw this in 2020. When, when all of our institutions were gripped by an ideological frenzy, um, that, that's when this process revealed itself and revealed itself in the fullest, um, fullest manner. Um, that, that, that really showed the progress over the past 50 years of this movement. Well, you, you mentioned George Floyd, and it's true that the, I, I think the Black Lives Matter uh, movement is, is the direct heir of the Black liberation movements of the 60s. Um, you know, what, what role, in your view, did the post-George Floyd riots, uh, which were so disturbing throughout 2020, play in the left's long-running cultural revolution? You know, my, my analysis now looking back is, is, is something quite interesting. Yeah, I, I think that the left in that summer of George Floyd felt that it had finally triumphed. Uh, it felt that it had achieved a, a, a style of soft hegemony over American institutions and felt that it was um, you know, morally as well as socially and politically victorious. And, and, and consequently, you saw the left-wing ideas, narratives, symbols, uh, statements, cancellation campaigns, you know, public uh, uh, rituals um, uh, uh, just dominate uh, the discourse and, and, and dominate institutional life. And for a time, they were right. I mean, every CEO, every school superintendent, um, you know, every media figure had to, um, in a sense, flinch or, or at best or kowtow at worst. Um, to these left-wing narratives, predominantly the BLM narrative. Um, but, but something then quite interesting happened. Um, just as they had done in the 1970s, they overplayed their hand. And they made a really catastrophic mistake. As people were asking, well, what, do, what does BLM want? What, what, do, what do these folks who are you know, rioting and burning down uh, you know, city blocks actually propose? They, they proposed the, the worst possible solution uh, that was de almost designed to alienate in the same way that, it, that their campaigns alienated in 1972. They picked defund the police. Um, and, and, and so if you fast forward a couple years later, you had, of course, the, the backlash against CRT. You had the parent movement um, trying to take back the, the curriculum in schools. Um, you had the utter collapse of BLM and of the defund the police movement, now even Democrats and even very far left Democrats are running away from that. And so you have a new flux um, where we haven't quite settled in on uh, on the new status quo. I think it's you know unlikely to be 
you know, what they want will never be what they want because what they want is, of course, impossible. Um, but we're in a process of negotiation right now. And so I think that this year and next year will be very interesting, especially with the presidential campaign, to figure out, you know, how society is going to negotiate, uh, you know, between left and right. Well, yeah, you, you write in the book about uh, the diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. This is this is something you've written about for City Journal quite a bit too. That they they represent um, the the implementation of critical race theories, abstract principles into policies and practice. Uh, but we're we're starting to see a pushback against these DEI initiatives too, right? That, that's absolutely right. And so some of the reporting that I've done for City Journal this year focused on exposing DEI bureaucracies in public universities in Florida and Texas. And uh, uh, in, in most part because of great leadership in those states, but I think in some part because of the work that we did with City Journal, um, you know, legislators abolish those departments uh, in every public university in both states. Um, it's probably not going to be perfect legislation. Universities are probably going to uh, try to weasel around it. But I think it's a very clear statement from legislators um, who are saying, we do not want critical race ideologies uh, uh, turned into administrative uh, orthodoxy and enforcement mechanisms, the DEI bureaucracies, in our publicly funded universities. We don't want to pay for that. We don't want to promote that. Um, and to me, this is significant because Conservatives uh, for many years seemed to have ceded control over public universities uh, to their adversaries, even in very conservative states. And to me, this is the first step in a longer process of, of, of higher education reform um, that I hope will, will be more ambitious and more proactive and, and, and have also a, 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 a positive uh, thrust to it, meaning that uh, it will have a competing vision of what a university is for. And my, my big hope with the book and also with some of these reporting campaigns and advocacy campaigns that we're, we're doing um, is that, you know, I want to challenge conservatives to actually create um, a, a substantive and competing uh, vision for what public institutions are supposed to do, how they're supposed to operate, which values they're supposed to transmit from one generation to the next. Because conservatives can no longer rely on a uh, neutral, laissez-faire, uh, you know, libertarian view of institutions. The fact of the matter is that we have enormous public institutions that, that in some ways dominate uh, political and social life in our country. And the question is, you know, of course, I would like to limit the influence. I would like to reduce the size of these institutions. But in the meantime, given the pragmatic concerns that we're facing, um, how do we govern them? And, and, and to me, that's the most important question that, that, that I'd like to raise um, in, in both the reporting and the... Well, you, you, you mentioned your, your advocacy work and your work um, you know, has, has uh, ignited incredible opposition in Florida with the, new, with the left just going ballistic over the work uh, you've done at New College of Florida, um, which is just one small university, college. I, this has dominated headlines across the country. Um, talk a little bit about that, just the, the incredible outrage of the left that um, this, this small school, which was not doing well, is now going to be turned into a, you know, a, a school with a, a curriculum based on, on classical liberal ideas. 
Yeah, it, it's it's really astonishing, and you know, I anticipated some uh, criticism, but I I didn't anticipate the the, the absolutely hysterical uh, reaction uh, to this reform. But the basic uh, story is that the governor Ron DeSantis appointed me and a number of other conservative intellectuals uh, to 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 as a new board majority for the New College of Florida in Sarasota. New College was uh, the lowest performing university in the state, failed to meet recruiting targets. It was functionally insolvent. It had turned into a kind of social justice ghetto uh, where gender studies and gender ideology was the center of of, of intellectual life. Um, And even the college's former administration admitted that it had a cultural problem, that it was a left-wing echo chamber, and that conservative students in particular were uh, not only excluded, but really, you know, uh, bullied and, and, and maligned by these uh, kind of uh, these these left wing orthodoxies. And legislators were even contemplating just dissolving the university it was doing so badly. And so instead of doing that, the governor said, hey, take it over, overturn the leadership, uh, bring in new people and and make it a classical liberal arts institution, something along the lines of a public and secular uh, Hillsdale College. And I mean, this provoked, provoked immediate outrage. And then every step of the way that we've been reforming this college has provoked these uh, really massive media cycles. And so, you know, we, we, we got rid of the president, you know, the, the, we got rid of the provost, we abolished the DEI office, we abolished the gender studies program. And now we're bringing in uh, new, new academics, we're bringing in new administrative staff, we're bringing in new kind of student body. Um, uh, we've launched some, some, sports uh, teams and sports programs. Um, and we've secured record funding from the legislature, um, putting the college on its best uh, financial footing in many decades. Um, but but what I think the reaction is, the heart of the reaction from the left is that we're demonstrating that conservatives can use political power to reform uh, public universities and to uh, bring them more in line with the wishes of legislators and the public, um, you know, because in, in the past, universities have operated in recent decades as wholly owned subsidiaries of left wing politics. They push activism instead of scholarship, um, and 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 they really serve as a kind of training and 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 uh, kind of employment grounds for left wing ideologues, not scholars in any real sense of the word, um, and. We're challenging that status quo, and we're starting, of course, with the smallest university, but it's become a, a symbol of, of, of a contest, which in my view is between the people of the state of Florida, you know, who elected Governor DeSantis, who elected state legislators, who therefore are responsible for the appointment of this new board, um, and then the permanent left-wing bureaucracy that would, would want no challenges uh, to its authority. And so to me, this is not just uh, a competition, or it's not even primarily a competition between left and right. It's primarily a competition between uh, democratic governance of public institutions and bureaucratic governance of public institutions. And uh, I'd like to demonstrate that ultimately the, the people are in charge and the people in the state like Florida deserve to have institute at least one institution within their state university system that upholds classical liberal education, which of course, classical meaning you know, preserving the tradition of the past, uh, it, it, it is somewhat conservative in nature. Yeah, the radical left um, has really pushed to transform our language and our institutions, including universities and colleges and public schools, to serve its, its ends. 
Yeah, one of the philosophical points you make in the book, and I think it's an important one, is that this whole project has been haunted by a moral void. Uh, it's failed to extinguish traditional or naturally grounded uh, desires people have uh, for you know democracy, for family. Um, you know, in in your view, what is the radical left's greatest weakness? Uh, does it relate to this moral void? And you know. I guess you've been describing this already, but what what more can we do to push it back and defeat it? The, the, I think that the greatest weakness is um, uh, twofold. You know, first there is a moral weakness um, through all of the literature that you see um, from the new left all the way to the radical left of of our own contemporary period. Um, you don't actually get a real serious sense of moral alternative. Um, it's all criticism. Uh, it's all deconstruction. It's all the negative side of the dialectic, exposing all of the existing institutions as racist, deficient, evil, oppressive, etc. Um, but, but they only can propose, in a sense, liberation. That's the great theme. Uh, liberation from these constraints, liberation from these institutions. Um, and, and what happens is that it creates really a moral vacuum because they don't recognize the legitimacy of anything that, that precedes them. They only recognize the legitimacy of an extremely and, and completely abstract future that is uh, unshackled from the, the, the limitations of the past. The second limitation stems precisely from the, the, the moral premise. Um, they, they can't actually govern any institutions effectively. Uh, you hand over your, your municipal government to left-wing radicals. They're going to you know, abolish the police department. Uh, and, and what we've seen, even not short of abolition, which of course didn't happen anywhere, but you see defunding, um, depolicing, decarcerating, decriminalizing. Um, you see that that impetus for liberation, uh, very in very physical terms in criminal justice, um, and then you see it in human terms, creating more crime, more decay, more chaos, more homicide, uh, more violence, more death. And so the, 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 the management of institutions by the left um, uh, it, it is never uh, demonstrated that they can do so uh, competently or in the interest of you know, the, the, the general consensus of the broader public. And so you have this paradox where left-wing radicals can only exist parasitically within the institutions. They can exist as critics uh, that, that don't produce anything of economic value, but seek to have their positions uh, you know, ensconced in the public bureaucracy where they soak up taxpayer funding and resources and, and you know, uh, academic departments, uh, creating criticism of the existing society without any capacity to improve or govern the institutions of that society. So you're, you're, you, end of, you end this way, you know, forever. Um, there's really no evidence or no uh, strong, even kind of strong argument um, that they can transcend this function uh, and, and, and overcome it. The book, America's Cultural Revolution, uh, it's been out for about a month now, a little over a month maybe. Um, hit number one on Amazon among all books. Uh, as I noted earlier, it's, it's a New York Times bestselling book. It's also garnered recognition, positive recognition, or at least respect from both sides of the political spectrum in an interesting way. So conservatives have hailed it as one of the more important and effective books in recent years. Um, but even some some detractors are saying, you know, it's, it's well-researched, it's well-written, you have to take it seriously. 
So I, I wonder, you know, has been the reception to the book a surprise to you? Um, you know, how do you how do you view this? Uh, and in in your view, has it reached the audience uh, you were looking for uh, when you wrote it? It, it? it has, and it's it's reached even beyond the audience that I wrote it for. And I, you know, I think I wrote it really for. Uh, people within our broader you know, social and political movement, people who uh, are likely to agree with me uh, and, and, and want this information and want to know the history and want to understand um, the, the, the key points and, and the key development of these ideas. But I also made sure to write it um, uh, in a way that would at least garner um, uh, the, the, the respect and really command the respect uh, of any uh, critics and and detractors and and people who disagree with my conclusions, because I wanted to write a, a you know a serious book in a serious way with serious research, and and I wanted to write it in a way that was also kind of narratively sophisticated, so it was enjoyable to read, that it had a story that it was telling, and and it's been interesting to watch even some of my kind of harsh critics, um, you know, who have pegged me as a you know bomb thrower or a vandal. Um, or, or a propagandist, um, you know, actually be forced to, to, to reckon with, wait a minute, um, th- this is a, a different tone. And I think that, um, you know, I, I actually, uh, I, I like to communicate in different registers, um, in different medium, in different media for different audiences. Um, and I think that it's not a contradiction, but it's actually a sign of, uh, of, of enjoyment of the variety of, of methods of communication and rhetoric and and scholarship um, that, that, you know, uh, my work is one way to, to persuade legislators, another way uh, in, in a three minute, you know, Fox News hit, um, another way in, in City Journal, and then another way entirely, uh, you know, writing. Well, thanks very much, Chris. Um, the book, again, is called America's Cultural Revolution. Uh, don't forget to check out Chris Rufo's work on the City Journal website. That's at www city-journal.org. You can follow him on Twitter, where he is a uh, frequent presence, at Real Chris Rufo, and we'll link to his author page in the description. Uh, You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as uh, always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a nice rating on iTunes. Chris Rufo, thanks very much. Great to talk to you as always. Likewise. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.